0: Good morning to each of you. It's been a pleasure to worship with you this morning. And uh, just want to let you know that uh, we've been anticipating spending this day together with you. And uh, if you have your Bibles today, I'd encourage you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 33 will be our focus. It will be our focus throughout the day. This passage is filled with tremendous insight tremendous instruction for us who are seeking to be followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, Rather than preaching the same sermon during the first service and the second service, God has led me to preach another sermon during the second service. So if you have no other plans and like to get the center of this passage of scripture, uh, please feel free to stay with us for the second service also. Matthew chapter 14, uh, beginning at verse 22 and reading down through verse 33. I'll be reading from the New International Version. Whatever translation you carry, whatever uh, paraphrase that you're comfortable with, my hope is that you'll keep your Bible open and follow along as we look at this passage together. Matthew chapter 14 verse 22 says this. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into a boat and go on ahead of him to the other side well, he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves, because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. "It's a ghost," they said, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come, go for it. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. And as we have been singing together and reminding ourselves of how faithful you have been through the days and months and years... We are careful to say thank you today for the fact that you have given us your word and it has survived through the centuries. It is a great story. And today as we look at a particular incident that takes place in your story, may our hearts be open. May our hearts be open. May our hearts be open so that whatever the Lord Jesus Christ wants to say, we will listen and we will obey. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray together. Amen. If you watch the news, be it local or national, if you've been watching the news through 2019, as we anticipate 2020, we can agree with this statement probably. Our world is a mess. (laughs) It's chaotic out there. Everything seems to be in disarray. Words that we have heard describing this world in which we live today in 2019. Mayhem, shambles, turmoil. Our world is a mess. It's the biggest mess in all history. I used to agree with that statement, but then just a few weeks ago, as I was listening to satellite radio, I discovered that some of the words that we use and we hear in our newscast today were found even 50 years ago. If you've been listening to the news, you've heard words like bigotry, hatred, prejudice, division. As I was listening to the radio, I was reminded of a song that was put together in the early 70s. Tom Clay, a Los Angeles disc jockey, produced a top 10 single. It reached, I think, number seven on the charts at one particular point. What the producer did was to take two songs and put them together. The two songs were Abraham, Martin, and John, referring to Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King Jr., and John F. Kennedy. The other song that he used as he put his presentation together was the song, What the World Needs Now, is Love, Sweet Love. And in his rendition, at the beginning and at the end of the, his single, Clay records four questions that he asks of a little girl who's probably about four or five years of age. And the questions go like this, what is segregation? I don't know what segregation is. What is bigotry? I don't know what bigotry is. What is hatred? I don't know. What is prejudice? I think it's when somebody is sick. We've gone back 50 years. We've discovered that some of the words that we use in here in our, in our uh, news reporting today were found in the 60s and into the 70s. Let's go back even further. Let's go back to the first century A.D. It's the world where Jesus enters. Segregation and bigotry? Well, there was a region called Samaria. It's where the people called Samaritans lived. And you know what the people of God did? You know what the Jewish people did? They were so anti-samaritan that what they would do is if they were trying to get from judah up into galilee the most direct route would take them right through the middle of samaria but you know what the jews would do if you were a pure jew you would rather than go straight through samaria you would go all the way around segregation bigotry Luke chapter 9, verses 52, 53, and 54 tell us that Jesus was about to enter a Samaritan village, and the village, the people there, would not welcome him. And James and John, the disciples of Jesus Christ, who also had the nickname Sons of Thunder, when they heard that the Samaritan village was not going to let Jesus come in, you know what they said? Jesus Would you like for us to call down fire and destroy them? Whoa. We don't like them. Let's burn them up. (laughs) Hatred. Again, the people of God, the nation of Israel, had lost sight of the fact that they were to be God's people and represent him to all of humanity. In fact, there was a division between the Gentiles and the Jewish people. And many times the Jews would call the Gentiles dogs. Now it's not a complimentary uh, phrase like the dog pound, which was let down again real bad last week, amen? Here we go again. But it was a term of derision. You dogs. And we hear a lot today about the divisive spirit that's in America. Did you realize that the world in which Jesus entered, there was a real divisive spirit in fact, we had the Pharisees, who could, we could call the conservatives. We had the Sadducees, which we would today call the liberals. We, they had, there were the zealots, and they were the ones who, hey, if we need to overthrow the government, let's overthrow the government. In fact, they were not, there was a group known as the Sakari, a part of the zealot movement, that underneath their outer garments... They concealed and carried daggers. And if you wanted to use that, if something arose that you needed to use that, you could take it out and use it. The conservatives, the liberals, the zealots, and oh, yes, there were those known as the Essenes. The Essenes, that was the group that said, the world is such a mess. Here's what we'll do. We'll move out into the middle of nowhere and establish our own little commune. And we'll read the Bible and we'll pray. And we'll look and wait for the Messiah to show up. A divisive spirit. Division. Different ideas of what we should do as the people of God and how we should become and demonstrate that we are the people of God. And the good news that I want for you and me to understand this day is this, Jesus comes into that mess, that chaos, that mayhem, that turmoil in that era of division. Think about it. God, the Heavenly Father, sends His Son, Jesus Christ, into that world. Jesus is the one to provide a bridge to the Father. The truth was, yes, the world was in such a condition that there needed to be someone who built a bridge back to the Heavenly Father, and Jesus Christ comes to be that bridge builder. But that's only part of His purpose. While Christ is here, he not only comes to be the savior of the world, but when you look closely at what we read in the gospel accounts, he spent a great deal of time, in fact, a second half of his ministry, his earthly ministry, he tended to pull himself away from the crowds and he invested himself in with this group called the disciples. See, he not only came to be a bridge builder back to the Father, Jesus also came to prepare bridge builders to himself so that they could in turn point others to the Father. For the truth was, he was going to leave at about the age of 30, 33. And once he left, his purpose of bridge builders to reach out to others was to continue on. And what we're going to do today in these three services is look very closely at this preparation aspect of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at it from the perspective of the scene that's found in Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 33. Hang on. Here we go. It says, verse 22, Immediately... We stop right there. Jesus is demonstrating a great deal of urgency in this scene. Immediately, what does he do? With an urgency, he makes the disciples get into a boat while he dismisses the crowds. The context of this passage, of course, is the paragraph, the description right ahead of it, beginning in verse 13 and coming down through verse 21. It's the feeding of the 5,000. Verse 21 tells us that there were 5,000 men who were fed, and the gospel writer Matthew goes on to tell us there were also women and children. Jesus takes one small boy's small lunch and feeds a crowd of some 15 to 20,000 people. And after he has fed them, verse 22 tells us, Jesus immediately separates the crowds from the disciples. Now we say, why would he do that? Well, before we answer that question, let me point out to you that this is the second time in Matthew's gospel that we see this separation. The same thing occurs in Matthew at the end of chapter 4 and beginning to chapter 5. At the end of chapter 4, the writer tells us that uh, Jesus is going throughout Galilee, and he's preaching, and he's teaching, and he's healing. Verse 24 tells us that news about him spread all over Syria. Verse 25 of chapter 4 says, large crowds, not just crowds, large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea and the region across the Jordan followed him we've got popularity we've got huge crowds and chapter four ends with the words the crowds followed him now it's interesting that once you move into chapter five Matthew shifts gears he writes the words the crowds followed him When you get to chapter 5, verse 1, it says that when Jesus sees the crowds, he goes up on a mountainside and sits down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. In other words, Jesus, seeing these crowds, Matthew chapter 4, goes to a place of isolation. Some of the crowds obviously probably followed him. He takes the position of a teacher. He sits down, and he begins to teach who? The disciples. Now, members of the crowd probably did listen as they followed, but he is addressing the disciples. In other words, Jesus has a distinct group. Two distinct groups of people that are involved in his public ministry. And in Matthew chapter 4 and 5, and in Matthew chapter 14, verse 22, there comes points in his ministry where he makes a distinction between the two. See, what he does, we'll use the word, keyword, attention. What he does here in Matthew 14, verse 22, is to direct attention to his complete purpose. If you go to John chapter 6, it's about verse 13 and 14. The feeding of the 5,000 is found in all four of the gospel accounts. And in John's gospel, it tells us in John chapter 6, verse number 14 and 15, that after he had provided fish sandwiches for everyone, that the crowd wanted to make him king. Their motivation was, hey, we were hungry and we got free fish sandwiches, This guy could probably probably give us free fish sandwiches for a long time. See, their motivation was, hey, I've got this need, I've got this temporal need, and Jesus could be the one to take care of my temporal need. In other words, the crowd can be defined as that group of people who are curious about Christ, Because of what they can get out of him and what they can get from him. Now please understand, though he makes a distinction, though he draws attention to the crowd and those known as his disciples, he still loves everybody. It's not an issue of love, it's an issue of discipleship. It's an issue of being a true follower of Jesus Christ. And in Matthew 4, verse 24, we read that the crowds followed him. And Matthew wants us to understand that you can follow him. But please realize, if your motivation is simply to get what you can from Jesus, you've missed Christ's total purpose. Because he is preparing disciples who aren't just curious about what they can get from him, But those are the people that allow Christ to work within them so that he can work through them to be bridge builders. And so Jesus, because he understands that the disciples can get caught up in this half-truth, which is, Jesus gives me food. What he does in Matthew 14, verse 22, is take the disciples places them on a boat, sends them across the sea, while he goes back to dismiss the crowds. See, Jesus realized that the disciples could have easily become so caught up in this limited understanding of his purpose that he gets the disciples out of there. See, Jesus understands it is so easy for us to think, talk, and act like, well, it's all about us. I didn't think he'd stand up and applaud that one. (laughs) But there it is. The crowds. Well, what can I get from Jesus? The disciples. What can Christ do in me? So that I can be a bridge builder. So that I can be a true follower. Motivated not by what I get out of him, not motivated by the fact that, well, it's all about us, but motivated by the fact that I am to be a bridge builder and the things that Christ did as he walked this earth. He wants his people, the church, the people of God, to do those exact same kind of things. Attention, directing our attention to Christ's complete service. Then we go to verse 23. It says after Christ dismissed the crowd he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Stop right there. Let that sink in. Jesus Christ separates the crowd from his disciples. And then he goes even to a more isolated place of isolated place and he does one thing. He prays. This is the principle or the word to describe this section. We'll call it conversation. And in this picture, we discover that Jesus, at this point in his ministry, needed to have a conversation with the Heavenly Father. He needed to communicate intimately with the Heavenly Father. And please understand that true prayer is always two-way communication. And what we are going to discover as we look at this scene and as we look at what else we find in Matthew's gospel is that there is a vast difference between saying prayers and being a person of prayer. When Jesus sees this scene... As he experiences John chapter 6 where the crowds want to make him king, motivated by their limited half understanding that he's a God, he's the God who takes care of only temporal needs. I think Christ had a crisis in his ministry. We won't take time to look at it, but if you go back clear to the beginning of chapter 14, the context of this chapter includes Jesus receives word that John the Baptist has been put to death. His cousin, the one who prepared the way for him, is put to death because he stood up for the kingdom of God. And then, as he feeds this crowd, and he sees the crowd, and how they want to make him king, motivated by a misunderstanding of the completion, the complete purpose that Christ has in coming, faces this crisis. In fact, I believe, build on what we read in Matthew, That when you once again go back to Matthew chapter 4, you'll discover that Jesus very well in Matthew 14 could have been reminded of what took place immediately prior to the beginning of his public ministry. Led by the Spirit, he goes out into the wilderness and there in the desert he is tempted three times by the enemy. Temptation number one is, hey, you haven't eaten for 40 days. You're hungry. You've got needs. Why don't you use your divine power and turn these stones into bread? You haven't had anything to eat for 40 days. Use your power to take care of your own needs. Jesus, no, I won't do it. The next thing the tempter does is he takes Jesus to the highest point of the temple it says, you want to be a popular Messiah? You want to have a crowd follow you? Here's what you do. You go up here. You take the, go from this highest point on the temple, and you jump down. And misquoting one of the Psalms, the, the enemy says, and God said in his word, the angels will come and protect you and carry you to safety. In other words, you want to have a successful ministry? You want to have a life that uh, you can impact a lot of people, get a lot of notoriety? Do the spectacular right now. Christ says no. For his final attempt to stop Christ pursuing the will of the heavenly father, the enemy takes him to a place where he can see all the kingdoms of the world. And the enemy says, bow down just one time. And all this will be yours. Now, we've read the rest of the story. We know the Father's will and plan is that Christ will be Lord of all. You see the subtle temptation the enemy is making? You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to face these people who are going to spit in your face and deal with these people who want you for what they can get. You don't have to go through all of that. Just bow down and take the shortcut. Don't follow the Father's purpose. Don't follow his plan. Just get to the main point, which is hey, your own kingdom. And you'll never convince me that as you read the entire story of Matthew's gospel, that when you get to Matthew 14, And we read that after he had dismissed the crowd in verse 23, that Jesus went up on a mountainside by himself to pray that Christ was in this crisis moment and he needed to tell the Heavenly Father what he was just now experiencing. And hear what the Father had to say to him. I did my usual thing before I came to stand before you. I went to the restroom to check my hair. Some would say, will not you look at the rest of your body? <laughs> uh, t- I've got this fetish about my hair, I want to look good. And when I looked in the mirror over here off, the, off this side of the church so there in the gym area, I was once again reminded of how God created me. I've got one mouth, And two ears. Every time we look in the mirror, I believe God wants to remind us that we should probably listen twice as much as we talk. And I think that is true of praying. Prayer is a two way communication. And I believe that the intimacy we have with the Heavenly Father is not dependent on how many prayers we say to the Heavenly Father, but intimacy is developed as we not only say our prayers, but we close our mouths, open our ears, and open our hearts to allow God the Holy Spirit to speak to us and say something to us and challenge us, comfort us. We listen to Him. A few years ago, I was once again reminded of how unnatural it is for us to listen. Shar and I had bought a new refrigerator uh, from a uh, nationwide uh, retailer and uh, we got a letter after we had it for about a year and the letter told us that there was a problem and uh, that uh, they needed to fix the problem they told us there'd be no cost to us, but that we would be be receiving a phone call from a local repair shop that would come and replace the part that was bad in our refrigerator. A few weeks later, the uh, the phone rang. It was a appliance repair shop from Columbus, and she began to give the spiel. And I said, "Oh yeah, yeah." They told me they were coming, which was my way of saying, "Yeah, I know. Well, I know." Okay. And she said, now, we want to see if we can schedule a time next week to come and do the work. Now, I was getting ready. This was a Friday on which I called. The next day, I was leaving to preach a revival somewhere else out of state. And so I said to the lady, that's great, but please understand that there will be nobody here to let you in until a week from today, next Friday. And her words were, oh, I understand. Would you like to schedule something for Monday? And so I said again, uh, my wife teaches school, and I will not be home. There will be no one here until a week from Friday to let you in. Oh, I see. How about Tuesday? We went through that. Finally, after about four attempts, count the days, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, finally, she said, will a week from the day on Friday work? And I said, Yes! That will be fantastic. I will look for you to be here a week from today. As I hung up the phone, I realized something. That in that five minutes of interaction, the one doing the service was not listening to the one for whom the service was being done. And as I've reflected on that further that day, as I thought about my prayer life, as I thought about the prayer life of the people of the church, how unfortunate that the one doing the service is not listening to the one for whom the service is being done. Please understand that saying prayers and praying are vastly different. Saying prayers is one-way communication. Praying is two-way conversation. And the intimacy that Jesus has with the Heavenly Father through his prayer life is so rich that it deeply impacted the disciples. In fact, in Luke chapter 11, verse 1, the disciples come to Christ and say, Lord, you're a great preacher. Teach us how to preach. No. Man, you can tell stories. You're a great teacher. Tell us how to tell stories. No. Lord, would you please teach us to pray? You've got this intimacy with the Heavenly Father. You don't just say prayers. You have this intimate conversation with the Heavenly Father. And we would like to experience that ourselves. And what really caught me as I was getting ready to preach this sermon uh, and share it with you is that it talks about there in Luke chapter 11, uh, verse 1, just as John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray. And it hit me. You see it? The people who have a lasting, powerful, dynamic influence on the culture in which they live understand that prayer is a two-way conversation. They don't only tell God what he should do. They listen to what they ought to do according to his plan and his purpose. Men and women who experience God's flowing through them and using them not only say prayers, but they pray. They have intimate conversation with the Heavenly Father. Brendan Manning, a former Catholic priest, tells this story. I received a phone call one day from someone I had never met, asking if I would go to the hospital to visit a dying man. I went. The man lay in the bed, a chair pulled up next to him. The first words he said, I'm gonna die. I know that, before I do, I've got to ask you a question. Some years ago, I was struggling with my prayer life, and someone told me that it would be, help me a lot if I could remember that prayer is a conversation, an intimate conversation with God. They suggested I set a chair out where I pray and imagine that I was having a conversation with the Lord Jesus, and the Lord Jesus was in that chair. I've been doing that. Sometime I pray for over an hour, remembering that Jesus is there. Father... Is that all right? Pastor Manning replied, It's not only all right, I think it delights the heart of God that your prayer is an intimate conversation with him. A few days later, Pastor Manning got a call from the daughter of the man saying that her father had died and they found, him, found his body in a strange position. She said to Pastor Manning, when we walked into the hospital room, his head was leaning on a chair by his bed. It's the matter of attention. Am I a crowd person? Motivated by what? Christ can do for me or am I really a disciple who hungers and thirsts for Christ working in my life working in me so that he can work through me so that just as Christ was the bridge builder to the heavenly father I too can be a bridge builder between a messy chaotic world to Jesus Christ and ultimately to God the Father Steve Green has this song that we're going to sing real quickly together Kristen's going to come and she'll lead us it's actually going to set the tone for the rest of the day Steve Green says this Lord I want to know you more Deep within my soul, deep within my heart, I want to know you. And you know what? I would give my final breath to know you in your death and resurrection. Lord, I want to know you more. Each service, the altar will be open. I'm never going to assume I know how you should respond. I'm just responsible for how I should respond. And to be very honest, as we sing this together, I may very well bow down here before you because just like everyone else, we preachers, we need to know him more. We claim the promise of Philippians chapter 1, which says this, we know that the God who began a good work in us is going to take it to its completion. And his com- the completed purpose of Christ is not only what can I get from him, but what can I give back to him? My very life so that others might know him too. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. People say it's so tough to understand, so confusing, so chaotic. (laughs) It's interesting. The very words we use to describe our world are the same words we use to describe the word of God. Unfortunately, our tendency is to pay more attention to what the media and the news is saying about our world than paying attention to what Christ is saying about us and our place in this world. So Lord, as we come to the close of this first hour of this one day of renewal, one day of revival, may we be open, may we be honest. As pastor prayed, may we be willing to take off our masks. May we be willing to check the pulse of our spiritual lives. May we be willing to evaluate how we pray when we pray and if we do take time to listen to you Lord deep within our hearts we want to know you we want to know you more want to know you more to share in your life and to share in your life we must share in your death we must share in your sufferings so as we sing speak to us very softly but very powerfully speak to us as we express to you our desire